As fighting in Ukraine intensifies in the country's east, the United States and its NATO allies are seeking to prolong the war for their own geopolitical benefit. The courts continue to offer impunity for police brutality. A Texas county arrested a woman on murder charges for having an abortion. France goes to the polls in the presidential election and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 12th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthroughnews. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarim and Walter Smolarik. Brian Becker is out today. Esther Ibarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Walter, we've got a whole week of shows lined up and Brian will be joining us as usual, later in the week. But for today's show, let's start on Ukraine. The, as I said earlier, the fighting in Ukraine is intensifying in the East, but there are some other updates, like potentially additional countries joining NATO. Where do you want to start? That's right. I mean, a lot of very, very big developments going on over the course of the last week. The main theater of the war has decisively shifted to the East, of course, since the February 23rd, Russian invasion took place. There has been war all throughout eastern Ukraine. And also there's been war in eastern Ukraine going back to 2014. The fighting in the north around the capital city, Kiev, and several other significant cities in the north has essentially come to a halt as a consequence of the withdrawal of Russian forces from those regions. They are now in the process of being redeployed to Donetsk and Lugansk. Donetsk and Lugansk are the areas that declared independent people's republics after the 2014 coup and launched an armed struggle to uh, establish autonomy independence from the central Ukrainian state. So this is a major shift in the political priorities of the Russian government and a shift in the military priorities of the war. It appears that the Russian military has concluded that it would be impossible to take the capital city, Kiev, and disperse the government, at least at this point. And so to, in a way, to save face politically, to still manage to pull out some kind of victory from this conflict, they're focusing the vast majority of their forces in the country's east. So the battle in Mariupol in the south along the Sea of Azov is continuing. There is intensified fighting around the city of Kramatorsk and all throughout Donetsk and and Lugansk. So there's tremendous suffering. The political situation in the world continues to be deeply destabilized. The threat of major power conflict between nuclear-armed NATO and nuclear-armed Russia continues. 
And it actually didn't need to be this way. I mean, I think this is the critical piece of information, the critical perspective that's being left out of the corporate media in the US, that there is prospects for a negotiated solution. And in fact, a basic outline of an agreement has begun to take shape or was beginning to take shape where Ukraine would declare its neutral status, that it would never join the NATO military alliance and perhaps also that it would never join the European Union. And in return, a number of significant world powers would agree to be guarantor states, that they would essentially respond to and prevent any further aggression taking place on Ukrainian territory. But it seems like that has, as we've been talking about, has been scuttled, at least for now. I mean, I, I wanted to refer to this article that came out in the Washington Post about a week ago. It's titled, NATO says Ukraine to decide on peace deal with Russia within limits. The article starts, Ukraine's Western backers have vowed to respect Kiev's decision in any settlement to end the war with Russia. But with larger issues of global security at stake, there are limits to how many compromises some in NATO will support to win the peace. And essentially, it goes on to, you know, in a typical propagandistic fashion, explain why, you know, Ukraine really needs to keep fighting. They need to, the war needs to continue. And that's because in the Pentagon and at the State Department and in the capitals of their West allies in Western Europe, they've come to the conclusion that the war continuing is the best thing for NATO because it isolates Russia and it destabilizes the Putin government. And it provides them an opportunity, an excuse to do things that would have seemed impossible. One of those things is that Sweden and Finland, two Scandinavian countries that have long been neutral throughout the course of the whole Cold War, they adopted you know, a stance of official neutrality. Those two countries could soon join NATO. This is being pretty widely reported in different media outlets. The Times is the the Times of London is the first outlet to report that and it's since been picked up all over the place. It is, you know, definitely true that top politicians in Finland and Sweden have said that they are open to joining NATO and public opinion has shifted in dramatic fashion in favor of such a move. The Swedish Social Democratic Party, which has long been, you know, staunchly in favor of a formal neutrality of non-NATO membership has announced that they'll begin an internal debate over the issue, you know, as it appears now, likely leading to the adoption of, of a formal pro-NATO position. And so this dynamic to the generals in the Pentagon, to the planners at the State Department is very positive. And the suffering of the Ukrainian people, which they've demagogically taken advantage of since the beginning of this conflict, actually means nothing to them. It actually means completely nothing to them. All that matters is advancing their own geopolitical goals, the expansion of NATO, which is what this really all comes down to if you go back to the 2014 coup. They are making progress towards all of those goals. So it remains to be seen which direction this will take. I mean, the Russian military could be successful in their impending offensive in the east. They could be unsuccessful and the war could drag on and on and on seemingly indefinitely or until there's some kind of major political explosion on one side or the other. What's also important in that in either scenario, Walter, is that in the process, the United States and NATO are arming and in some cases training far-right forces to achieve their goals. In our editorial meeting, we looked at an article that talked about the CIA 
launching a program, and this article was earlier this year, where they were training elite forces to, we'll put it this way, one person familiar with the program, and I'm quoting from the article, one person familiar with the CIA program said, the United States is training an insurgency. And this is a former CIA official saying this, and he added that the program has taught the Ukrainians how to quote unquote kill Russians. And I'll read a little further from the article. Both U.S. and Ukrainian officials believe that Ukrainian forces will not be able to withstand a large scale Russian incursion. And representatives of both countries also believe that Russia won't be able to hold on to new territory indefinitely because of stiff resistance from Ukrainian insurgents. And so this same former CIA official says, quote, if the Russians invade, those graduates of the CIA programs are going to be your militia, your insurgent leaders. And that's where the agency's program could have a serious impact. And I bring this up because we're talking about this war and we're talking about whether the war will drag on or whether there will be a negotiated settlement. And it's been very clear, as we've discussed, that NATO and the U.S. seems to be really invested in carrying on the war. So how the war is carried out becomes very important, whether we're talking about the controversy over Bucha last week and the claims, competing claims from Russia and from Ukraine about who carried out this massacre, or whether we're talking about competing claims about a missile that's just struck in East Ukraine and killing many civilians. And the other part of this that I want to bring out that's in the news I want to point to a really good interview by our colleague in Breakthrough News, Rania Kalik, who really dives into this issue about, again, is NATO, is the U.S. arming neo-Nazis, far-right militia in Ukraine? Because we know that they are not only part of the National Guard, but they are part of the general Ukrainian military. So I want to play a clip from Tariq Cyril Amar. He's an historian from Germany who is currently Associate Professor of History at Koch University in Istanbul, working on Russian, Ukrainian, and generally East European history. He was speaking with Rania Kalik. The first clip is about Azov's role and influence in the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian society. If you read Michael Carbon, if you read perhaps the, the single best Ukrainian expert on this, Oleksiy Kuzmenko, who's far too little known in the West and has done excellent work on the far right in Ukraine, it is very, very clear that Azov has not depoliticized. And it's a classical wag-the-dog situation, you know. Azov actually has probably colonized a part of the state. It's not the state who has made Azov un-Azov. That's wow. what happened here. So, of course, um, American lawmakers can try, and I'm glad they try, to keep, for instance, javelins out of the hands of Azov. But recently, during the war, as you would expect, we've seen a lot of visual evidence of Azov fighters with javelins. I mean, right. what, you, what would happen in a war, right? And I'm sure it also was going on before the war. And then a little further on in the interview, he talks about how Azov is not just a unit within the military, but it's also a movement. It's a social movement. And very often there are officers, other people in the Ukrainian military who consider themselves part of that movement. And they receive training. They're able to 
create structures so that they can move up in the hierarchy without being labeled as an Azov member per se. So let's just hear that one last clip. And you have cases, literally cases, I'm sure we don't know all of them, of precisely these Centuria guys going through these programs. So there you have it. You have future officers of the Ukrainian army who may go very far, literally being trained by the prime military training institutions of the West, of certain countries in the West, of NATO, if you want. Mm -hmm. And they don't know who they are even dealing with. And when they were contacted... After this report came out and asked, you know, are you looking at who you're actually training? The answer was, no, we don't, because that's the Ukrainians do that, right? So basically, the Ukrainians didn't have control and maybe didn't want control. And those Western partners, the Germans, the British and the Canadians in this case, were all like, no, it's not our job. (laughs) So, and then you have an outcome. That's unbelievable. Wow. So... That's new information coming out that's in the news. I think that we should pay attention to it. And I see it as part of a larger deep dive that needs to be taken into this whole issue around the far right in Ukraine and the relationship of the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, to it. Because, you know, as I know, he's getting this free ride in the Western media. He's like the Mandela of Ukraine or something. And not enough attention is being paid to how he has appeased the far right, how much he has been willing to maybe look the other way in some of these cases that we're talking about. And maybe we have to look at how much control does he actually have over the military if these kinds of arrangements are being made and the far right is able to have this much influence. I think that's a very important point. I mean, Zelensky, even though he's been lionized so much since the conflict began, is far from the only important political actor inside of Ukraine. And absolutely, I mean, a major factor, I think in pretty much all of the decisions he's making about the war is the presence of these far-right and neo-Nazi elements like the Azov Battalion and all these other associated forces too that we might not hear about as much. You know, every time that there's a peace proposal every time there's, you know, some kind of progress in the peace process, you know, these forces are not pleased about that. These forces also, like the NATO leaders, want the war to continue, but for their own ideological reasons. And and also because the war strengthens their political position internally inside of Ukraine, because, you know, of course, in, in a war, the military elements of the state are the most important ones. Walter, there's another really important update going on in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky made some really, you know, intense and inflammatory comments last week, essentially saying, well, not essentially, literally, I will quote him, quote, Ukraine will become a big Israel with its own face. Ukraine will definitely not be what we wanted it to be from the beginning. It is impossible. Absolutely liberal European. It will not be like that. We will not be surprised if we have representatives of the armed forces or the National Guard in cinemas, supermarkets, and people with weapons, I am confident that the question of security will be the issue number one for the next 10 years. I'm sure of it, unquote. I mean, so he's essentially saying, like, we're going to amp up security in a big way. Like, we're going to start having, just like when you walk around Israel or historic Palestine, as it's really known, there's IDF members, Israeli defense forces with, you know, massive weapons just at the bus stop, you know, at various cultural centers, just everywhere. You know, he's saying we're going to play hardball and we are 
absolutely going to push back. And, you know, we are happy to work with the West and be really aggressive toward Russia. We're ready to be really aggressive toward Russia and we're ready to to have every citizen armed effectively. People in cinemas, supermarkets and people with weapons. Ukraine's strength will come from, quote, every house, every building, every person, unquote. This is big talk. Yeah, I think that's a real danger. I mean, the permanent militarization of Ukrainian society, which, you know, like we were just talking about, would would strengthen these fascistic elements because they're strongest in sort of the military dimension of the state in several different ways. So if that becomes the case, I mean, another parallel with Israeli society is the unquestionable, unchallengeable role, venerated role of the IDF, the, the Israeli Armed Forces, in society, you know, it's it's similar to U.S. militarism, where the most important thing ever, like the number one rule in politics, you have to support the troops. What Zelensky is saying is, I think, basically a similar thing where, you know, a permanent adoption of militarism, you know, almost kind of like the form of the Ukrainian state is really the prospect, what they're looking at. And I think there's different possibilities here. I mean, he could be sort of floating these things essentially as a concession to some of these fascistic forces saying like, please just like, let me negotiate a deal. And and I promise that in the future Ukrainian state, you'll have this venerated status and your position within the military and society will be secure. It could be the fact that he wants to increase Ukraine's negotiating position by, you know, sort of emphasizing the military prowess of the country, its capacity to defend itself. But certainly it it moves away from a lasting peace. And as we've been saying, since this conflict broke out, the only possible way that there can be lasting peace in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe as a whole is for NATO to back off, to make an ironclad pledge to cease its expansion towards Russia's borders. And then the two sides could engage in a mutual demilitarization of the region. But this talk of being you know, a big Israel, this talk about becoming this permanent military garrison state, certainly is music to the ears of the people who don't want a lasting peace to take place. Right. And it would, it would seem to directly talk back to Putin and his goal to demilitarize Ukraine. So you're basically saying that, no, we are going to be very militarized. And as you said, Walter, it will maintain a very important role for these far-right forces infused throughout the military. I want to go back to more of an analysis of NATO in general, because, you know, with this news that Finland and Sweden could soon join NATO, which is seems to me like a huge escalation, and frankly, probably the opposite of what Russia was, you know, interested in and wanted to, you know, I'm sure they wanted to try to weaken NATO, given that NATO was set up to essentially push back on Russia and to and to attack Russia. But I, I think it's important to, you know, we've talked a little bit about the background of NATO, that the U.S. set up NATO, the U.S. set up all these other treaty organizations, and that, you know, this one is the last one to survive and that it's completely outside of its own purview. It's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and yet is operating in Libya when it destroyed Libya in 2011. And now there's open air slave markets in what used to be the most prosperous country in the continent of Africa. You know, obviously it's far past its purview, but there are other really insidious facts about NATO that I think are really important to talk about. One of them is that after World War II, there were dozens of fairly high-ranking Nazi army officers who were allowed back into the German army, who were 
even promoted in the German army. Two of them, the most high ranking were Hans Speidel and Adolf Heusinger. They had been lieutenant generals in the Nazi army, and they were both brought into the new German armed forces one level up into essentially the equivalent of a two-star American major general. And then more than that, they were both promoted into being commander-in-chief, one after the other, commander-in-chief of the Allied land forces in Central Europe for NATO. This is a very high-ranking position. This is a commander-in-chief NATO position. So I think it's really important when we talk about NATO, it's always described in the press and in the media as some military defense operation when, in fact, we know it is deeply an offense operation. Um, But to look back at really how it started and why and how it's continued, you cannot overstate the fact that there are two lieutenant generals from the Nazi army who have served as the people who are doing the bidding of NATO, the people who are even guiding NATO in Germany and in Central Europe. I mean, they were literally the commanders in chief in Central Europe for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I mean, just disgusting. I think it's really interesting that that article that you mentioned, and I think it's from the History Channel or History.net, it talks about the way it characterizes history is very important to kind of, you can call it whitewash, these facts that you're laying out. So it says the Soviet Union, which had liberated the countries of Eastern Europe only to occupy and enslave them as communist satellite states. <laughs> the way that it's described, it's an effort to say that, okay, that's the evil that was on the other side. And so the West was almost forced to collaborate with these former Nazis I don't know if you ever become a former Nazi. I mean, you know, people who are in the Nazi army in order to bring them into NATO and to have them fight along with the West against the Soviet Union. Right. And I don't think you become a former Nazi when you're a literal lieutenant general in the Nazi army. Yeah. And, you know, they talk about it, too, as if, you know, these were two generals who were among the few who really had direct experience fighting the Soviets. So, of course, the U.S. had to bring them into NATO. Of course, Germany had to bring them along. Well, the Soviets were fighting the Nazis. (laughs) Remember that. Remember that that's why the Soviets were fighting. They wanted to stop the German Nazi army from invading more and more and more of their country. I mean, that's why the Soviets were fighting back. So, you know, this idea that, like you're saying, Esther, if you can strip things of their context, oh, gosh, well, it's important to know how to fight the Soviets. Well, remember why the Soviets were fighting in the first place. Absolutely. And just one more thing is that we're going to be talking about this story for a while because the way the corporate media is presenting this current conflict in Ukraine, it is totally stripped of any kind of context or history, even the fact that in this same effort, that they use these former Nazis during the so-called Cold War, they were happy to excuse the crimes of Ukrainian Nazis. And we have to remember that none of the Ukrainian Nazis were sent to Nuremberg. They didn't face trial, right? There were some of the people, even Stepan Bandera was able to kind of escape and live under a, a pseudonym for a long time with the assistance of the U.S. And that's something that documentary Ukraine on Fire, which I highly recommend, it lets us know. That's why they want to marginalize that documentary and not let it be seen by the American public, because it would totally contextualize what's happening now rather than decontextualize it as it's happening in corporate media. 
Yeah, I mean, some more important historical facts that this points to. I mean, the United States ruling class, the U.S. government, along with the governments of most of the so-called democratic imperialist powers in the run-up to World War II, the U.K., France, were actually, you know, to a significant extent pro-Nazi, or at least included large pro-Nazi elements. And I mean, I think that was probably most pronounced inside of the United States because the U.S. government and the Nazi government shared a pretty similar racial ideology. I mean, that is the official, you know, really the official basis of the U.S. system of government at the time was like explicitly stated white supremacy. And so it's no accident that when the Nazis came to power in Germany in the early 1930s, the place that they looked where they, you know, dispatched teams of politicians and officials and bureaucrats to sort of learn the tricks of the trade and how to create a racialized apartheid society was the United States. I mean, the infamous Nuremberg laws that were imposed in Germany that were essentially the beginning of the process that would lead to the Holocaust were based on the Jim Crow laws in the U.S. South. Same thing with the Nazi eugenics program. And so there are, you know, important leading figures in the U.S. ruling class, including Henry Ford, probably the most infamous one, who are very ideologically supportive of the Nazis and sort of the cement, really the most important glue that held them together, the imperialist countries of the West and the Nazi regime that took power in Germany was anti-communism, shared opposition to the Soviet Union. And in fact, there were there are also elements of the Nazi government that thought it was insane for Hitler to attack France and Poland and Britain, because in their view, those were the natural allies of Germany in their crusade against the Soviet Union and against communism. So in a way, you know, I think the relationship between the countries that would go on to be the NATO powers and Nazis writ large parallels, for instance, the relationship between the United States and Al-Qaeda. The forces that would go on to form Al-Qaeda started out as close allies of the United States, close allies of the CIA in the fight against Again, the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, the religious fundamentalist insurgency against the Afghan socialist government and their Soviet allies, which were militarily engaged in the fight. And then, you know, Al-Qaeda essentially turned against the United States. There were the bombings of the U.S. embassy building in Tanzania, 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so there was, you know, a downturn in the relations, the formerly very good relations between the United States and Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. But then the political situation shifted again. And in places like Syria and Libya, where civil wars broke out, against governments that have long been independent of U.S. imperialism, the U.S., the CIA, and al-Qaeda found themselves on the same side again. And that actually worked out. You know, they were able to work together. Right. And I always think about the U.S. being a natural ally of apartheid South Africa. And I guess we can go down that rabbit hole. It'll be like all the dictators that we've supported, that we've propped up in South America. So I guess we won't go down that rabbit hole, but definitely supporters of apartheid South Africa, supporters of apartheid Israel now. So we have blood on our hands. And this conversation is also important because it helps us when we're reading media in moments like this, where the fog of war is so great, where it's really hard to know what's actually happening. It's very hard to know what's happening on the ground. It's very hard to know what claims are real, what photos are real, what videos are real, because there are, you know, a couple here and there that are very clearly not true. 
but you know, probably some are true. And we, it's just incredibly hard to know. But when we look at what U.S. media and, you know, as a result of the U.S. political class, when we look at what they've supported in the past, I think it's really helpful when we're looking at current media. Because, for example, while every single headline every single day is catastrophic coverage of, you know, heart-wrenching photos of babies, of families being broken up, of refugees, clearly these are photos and stories designed to make us feel horrible about what's happening. And clearly there are some really horrible things happening in Ukraine right now. Ukraine is not the only place where there are horrible things happening. And I think it's incredibly important to acknowledge that because, you know, it helps us understand what the media is doing. It helps us see maybe not why, but it definitely helps us see that the media and the political class are emphasizing some struggles over other struggles. And right now, since January, About 13,000 newborns have died in Afghanistan. 95% of the population in Afghanistan isn't getting enough to eat. They're hungry. And these things are because the United States stole Afghanistan's central bank assets and are sanctioning Afghanistan, the country that they occupied, that the U.S. military occupied for 20 years and, you know, and destroyed and killed and maimed. And that's not in the papers. That's not being covered. I mean, There are a number of other stories not being covered, but this one in particular, I thought was so important to highlight 13,000 newborns who have died in Afghanistan. I mean, a front page headline and photos of that would be heart wrenching. That would be so heart wrenching. But that's not what's on the cover, because that's not only a, a U.S. government and U.S. military failure. You know, it is also in a part of the world that the U.S. capitalist and political elite is turning away from. They're not interested in the Middle East anymore. They want to focus on when we look in the national security strategy documents that have been you know, published, it's pivot to Asia. Let's make sure that the United States is getting aggressive against China and it's pushing back against Russia. So and it's you know attacking Russia. And so those are the things that are getting covered. Well, even when we were in the middle of the war in Afghanistan, those kinds of figures weren't routinely reported. We didn't see those kinds of pictures. And it's also because they're not white people, right? You know, when we attack, you know, when we say pivot to Asia, the last time we pivoted was the Vietnam War. And we still had a corporate media at that time that brought us pictures of Vietnam, which helped in the the carnage and the killing of up to 3 million people there, right? But, you know, we don't have that now, not with the Jeff Bezos, CNN, you know, media that we have right now. And it also reminds me that we still are not getting reporting about the 14,000 East Ukrainians that have been killed by their own government, you know? So that's still being left out of the coverage, Nicole Walter. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's another really important element of this, Esther, that we haven't yet talked about. But I, I think it's important that we do. Let's talk about Russian gas. And we've got a, an important clip to play as well, I think, on the economic front here. Right. So just as you talked about the reporting not dealing with uh, Ukraine, not dealing with Afghanistan and their central bank funds being seized, you know, In Ukraine, there's the hot war, which is the military wars, there's the economic war, and there's the information war, which we're also talking about, right? But on the economic front, things have not gone the way the West, the U.S., and NATO wanted them to go. The ruble has not collapsed as they 
thought it would, as Biden crowed about during his State of the Union address. One of the things that Russia has had in its favor is the fact that it's a major gas and oil exporter. It's a major exporter of wheat and other essential metals and and all types of things that are essential in this globalized economy. And maybe the U.S. can cripple Venezuela can cripple Cuba and so many other countries that have maybe one staple that they export. But Russia is a much larger economy that has been made more self-sufficient because of these years of sanctions that have already been piled onto it. Anyway, I think that that is the story right now. As you continue to hear in corporate media, the push for even more sanctions and that Europe, particularly Germany, is going to have to sanction Russian oil and gas. Never mind that Europe is much more dependent on Russian oil and gas than the U.S. And so the call from people here in this country or perhaps the U.K. for more sanctions and for Germany to inflict this own punishment on itself for the sake of this war drive is is really amazing. It's I don't even have the word for it, but I was listening to the Sunday shows and on show after show, commentator after commentator talked about how we're going to have to increase this effort to make it stronger. Germany especially is going to have to sanction Russian oil and gas and sanction all of Russia's banks, not just some, meaning this new arrangement that Putin came up with that buyers have to use rubles to pay for Russian oil and gas to defeat that in a sense. And so this process that he developed allows Germany and other purchasers to pay, continue to pay in their dollars or euros, but they have to pay it into the Gazprom bank, which then converts those payments into rubles. And so this has infuriated, you know, the whole NATO scheme, which has allowed Putin to bypass their sanctions in so many ways. So anyway, this is Gordon Brown, former Prime Minister of the UK, talking to Fareed Zakaria on CNN on Sunday. The only thing he understands is threats. The only thing he understands is strength. And we've got to show that this united strength that has started this uh, uh, approach uh, to dealing with this crisis continues. And that will mean, I'm afraid to say for Germany and others, they will have to do oil and gas uh, sanctions. They will have to cover all the banks and not just some of the banks. Right. And so they're supposed to basically have what is already a deepening recession or heightening inflation in their country. Tremendous increases in prices for energy go on. They're supposed to have have that go on for the sake of this U.S., what is really a U.S. policy, kind of masquerading as a NATO policy. And we have to you know, keep an eye on that to see what is happening because it's having a tremendous impact internally in all these countries. You know, the the French election that we'll talk about, you know, the the surge of the, the far right in Germany, which has been ongoing. These people are being bolstered by being able to give out the message that look at these people, look at these politicians, these liberals, they're not even taking care of your needs. They're so busy trying to look beyond our country and our needs to satisfy this other agenda. The German government is already in conversation about an emergency energy plan. And, you know, because it's Western Europe and because there have been so many people's movements and struggles for, you know, prioritizing people rather than businesses, 
people and their homes are in the emergency plan to get energy first. But, you know, the backside of that is like, well, if companies and businesses don't have energy, then you don't have a job to go to anymore. I mean, this is a disgusting and outrageous demand that Germany, you know, sanction Russia when they actually need this energy. And I mean, it's just really disgusting. Yeah, at the beginning of almost any war, there is a frenzy among the public, right? The authorities are able to whip up public opinion in such a manner that there seems to be overwhelming or even unanimous support for the war among the population. And, you know, we definitely saw that when the invasion of Ukraine took place in February. There were massive demonstrations all across Europe, you know, in the tens of thousands or, you know, some were even claimed to have been 100,000 or more supporting the Ukrainian government, condemning Russia. But over time, naturally, inevitably, that war frenzy fades and public opinion begins to shift once people start feeling the real consequences of the war, which are always concealed at the outset by the powers that be. So I think that is probably going to be most pronounced in Europe on the issue of this oil and gas blockade, oil and gas embargo that is being proposed and prepared. Yeah, absolutely. Walter, let's continue discussing the politics of Europe because France just went to the polls to vote for president and there are some pretty interesting results in this first round of voting. That's right. So the two candidates that made it through to the second round are the incumbent president, Emmanuel Macron, and the main far-right candidate, the fascist candidate, I think we can say, Marine Le Pen. And she's the leader of a political party called the National Rally, which up until a few years ago was known as the National Front. So the results were quite close. Macron came in first place with 27.8% of the vote, Marine Le Pen in second place with 23.1%. And probably the biggest surprise of the first round was how close the main left-wing candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, came to actually beating Le Pen. He received 21.9% of the vote. He surged in the closing weeks of the campaign on a left-wing platform opposing the pro-corporate policies of the Macron government that impoverishes so many workers while making the already rich richer, and opposing the far-right demagoguery of Le Pen and the National Front, trying to displace the blame for that suffering that the working class is experiencing on immigrants or on the LGBTQ community or any of the other typical scapegoats that the right wing turns to. So I think that that is a significant sign for hope that the left was almost able to edge out the main far right fascistic candidate. You know, if you add up the vote of Melanchon and any one of the other left wing or center left candidates who ran, whether that's the Socialist Party's candidate the Communist Party's candidate or the Green Party's candidate, he would have actually beaten out Le Pen to make it to the second round for a showdown with Macron. So while the situation is definitely very concerning, a lot of the candidates who lost in the first round, like immediately, like in their concession speech, endorsed Macron in an effort to block the far right from coming to power. There still is hope that a left-wing alternative can continue to gather strength in the country and try to displace the far right as the sort of main oppositional force to the system. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Walter. 
There are a couple of really huge stories and reproductive rights that are happening in our country right now that I think are really important to talk about. One of them is in Oklahoma, where Oklahoma lawmakers just approved essentially a ban on abortion, like not one of these reforms or laws that, you know, will obviously be taken up to the Supreme Court because, you know, they're chipping away at Roe at, you know, one side or the other. You know, some of those are like the, well, you can have an abortion, you have full rights to an abortion, but all abortions must be completed at a hospital with certain width of hallways. And that width, of course, doesn't exist in the state except for in one or two places, something like that. Or even the, you can have as many abortions as you want, but only abortions that are pre a certain period of time. So, you know, all of those are, you know, are really commonplace around the country, those kinds of laws. Right-wing lawmakers have been making those across the country to chip away at Roe and essentially turn it back. But this is a, Oklahoma, this is a just a ban. It's a full-on ban, quote-unquote, except to save the life of a pregnant woman in a medical emergency, unquote. And it's a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a fine of $100,000. It would take effect if it's signed by the governor on August 26th. And I think one really important thing to talk about with this bill, I mean, not only is it obviously disgusting and clearly, just so clearly, an attempt to completely control women and their lives, their ability to decide what to do with their lives, their ability to decide in this country where education and housing and food aren't free and they're not free for adults or children. And in this country where women disproportionately are the heads of household raising the children, you know, the goal of this bill and bills like it are to take away any ability for a woman to make choices about her own life and what she wants to do with it. I think the other big thing to talk about with this bill that is really important to highlight A coalition of abortion rights groups, including the ACLU of Oklahoma and Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice, put out a statement including this fact, quote, nearly half of the patients Oklahoma providers are currently seeing are medical refugees from Texas, unquote. And some news agencies are reporting that this bill came to fruition soon after the Texas bill. Not only, I'm sure, Oklahoma seeing their neighbor, you know, pass the Texas bill that was so restrictive, You can only have abortions up to six weeks. And of course, you know, six weeks is one missed period, maybe. And that's only if you have a regular period and you know when it's coming and, you know, it never is spotty and you never miss it. And you essentially you don't know it's six months whether you're pregnant. So, you know, they clearly saw this happening in Texas and thought, well, we should do one here. But also, you know, the, the legislators in Oklahoma don't want people in Texas to have access to abortion either. They don't want people in Texas to have access. They don't want people in Oklahoma to have access. They don't want anybody to have access, any women to have access to this service, this basic, important, life-saving, vital service. You know, there's not even a rape pullout in the Oklahoma bill. There's not even that exception. You can get raped on the street and still lawfully have to carry your pregnancy to term and have a child no matter how old you are. So I think it's just a, you know, a really disgusting escalation of what's happening. And, you know, you're really starting to see, I think, women standing up and pushing back. And I think we're definitely seeing that in Texas, where there's another story I'm going to talk about. But before I get there, I did want to say one other thing. Planned Parenthood, which operates two of the four abortion clinics in Oklahoma, plans to challenge this legislation in court, according to the interim president of Planned Parenthood, Great Plains, 
Her name is Emily Wales, and she said, quote, this ban is more in line with the traditional bans that have been blocked in the past. So we're fairly confident that as long as Roe remains the law of the land, there is a path to blocking this. So that's what's going on in Oklahoma. Then in Texas, the Star County Sheriff's Office arrested and charged 26-year-old Lizelle Herrera with murder on Thursday for, quote, intentionally and knowingly causing the death of an individual, J.A.H., by a self-induced abortion, unquote. They even named the fetus. Her bond also was set for half a million dollars. Half a million dollars. La Frontera Fund organized a protest outside the Star County Jail on Saturday morning after she had been arrested. The group's founder, Ricky Gonzalez, said at the protest, quote, that Lizelle had miscarried at a hospital and allegedly confided to hospital staff that she had attempted to induce her own abortion and she was reported to the authorities by hospital administration or staff. He also said this arrest is inhumane and we are demanding the immediate release of Lizelle Herrera. And another, Steve Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas School of Law, said something else important, I think. Quote, the Texas murder statute specifically exempts cases where the person who terminated the fetus is the pregnant woman. Unquote. So, you know, because of this, obviously, the fact that it is clearly illegal to do this, the district attorney, after a lot of protest over the weekend, after some national news, although not nearly enough national news, decided to go ahead and dismiss the indictment. They're filing a motion today to do that. I just want to read part of this because I think it's so important. I mean, these prosecutors have so much power. And so what he said was, in reviewing applicable Texas law, it is clear that Ms. Herrera cannot and should not be prosecuted for the allegation against her. Prosecutorial discretion rests with the district attorney's office and in the state of Texas, a prosecutor's oath is to do justice. Following that oath, the only correct outcome in this matter is to immediately dismiss the indictment against Ms. Herrera. How he's going around saying, you know, that ignoring this would have been a dereliction of duty, how he's saying that, you know, that the sheriff's department did their duty in an investigating this quote unquote incident. This incident was a 26-year-old woman in a hospital after having tried because there are very, very, very few abortion providers. There's only one abortion clinic within hundreds of miles of the massive Rio Grande Valley. So, you know, she tries to give herself an abortion and she ends up at a hospital. That's the incident. She's at a hospital because there aren't facilities that offer the kind of care that she needs. I just want to add one one more quote. Melissa Arjona, who co-founded South Texans for Reproductive Justice said the arrest is a consequence of SB 8, which is the Texas law that I mentioned, which criminalized abortion as early as six weeks and deputized private citizens to sue anyone who provides an abortion or, quote unquote, aids and abets a procedure. She said, quote, I mean, they criminalize pregnancy, basically, and abortion access. I think she's right. I mean, I, I think that's what this is coming to. But the fact that there was a protest and the fact that the protest and the attention clearly is what changed the course here because there are plenty of people who, you know, are serving time who are being held in facilities for things that are illegal. So we can't only defend on, you know, the law to make sure that people aren't being held for things. We have to absolutely protest. We have to push back and we have to keep fighting. I think as we're heading into the spring where we might hear, you will hear a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court on the challenge to Roe versus Wade, it's just so incredibly important that that we continue to revitalize and rebuild, push the women's movement to include access to reproductive justice for everybody and to make it actually and really accessible. Let's move on to 
another story. There's a couple really important stories going on in both the Amazon case where Christopher Smalls, an incredible organizer, and and many others who organized in the Staten Island Amazon facility, they have successfully organized a union. And there's some news on that, Esther, as well as another labor story. Right, Nicole. So I think I'm still on a high from the tremendous victory in Staten Island last week at the Amazon warehouse, coordinated by Chris Smalls, a grassroots labor organizer, you know, with support from like a childhood friend and just so many of the other people he used to work with at the warehouse before he was fired unfairly for trying to stand up for workers at the start of the pandemic, you know, to have safe working conditions. So maybe it's a cliche, but it is a David versus Goliath story. And We know that it's even deeper than that, that on the other side, Amazon poured in millions of dollars to try to defeat this effort. And they're still trying to defeat other efforts at other warehouses, including in Bessemer, right? But I also saw another article last week about kind of following up that tremendous victory, analyzing how the Biden administration has refused to follow its own task force's limited recommendations to boost unionization. People heard the quote from Biden that his own press secretary tried to smack down. He was basically saying, Amazon, we're coming for you and everything. But as it turns out, Biden is not coming for any big corporation. (laughs) It's really going to be up to the people. And anyway, this article in The Lever points out certain executive actions that Biden continues to avoid. For example, he's refused to reinstate an Obama-era rule requiring companies like Amazon to disclose all of that spending to crush union drives. And it goes on to say, quote, such disclosures can help union organizers combat the anti-labor tactics of major law firms like those that previously employed the husband of the task force's chair, Vice President Kamala Harris. And also, the article says, Biden has also declined to use his executive authority to halt federal contracts to Amazon amid its union-busting campaign. In fact, Amazon was awarded a $10 billion contract last summer, months after the president promised on the campaign trail to, quote, ensure federal contracts only go to employers who sign neutrality agreements committing not to run anti-union campaigns, end quote. And so the article quotes uh, John Logan. He's a professor of labor and employment studies at San Francisco State University. He says, it's clear that there are these tensions inside the Democratic Party. On the one hand, you have a president who says he wants to be the most pro-union president in history. On the other hand, you can only judge him on his accomplishments in office. We're not going to get the PRO Act, not going to get labor provisions and build back better, what are we going to get, end quote. So just two things that the PRO Act would do, for example, is eliminate so-called right-to-work laws, which, contrary to their name, make it harder for working people to form unions and bargain collectively for better wages and benefits. And the law would forbid employer interference in union elections. It makes it an unfair labor practice to require employees to attend, quote-unquote, captive audience meetings designed to discourage union membership. 
It would also prohibit employers from entering into agreements with employees under which employees waive the right to pursue or join collective or class action litigation. And this is very important in terms of the Amazon victory and ongoing efforts to organize at Amazon since the victory in Staten Island. Chris Smalls, the interim president of the Amazon Workers Union, has received, he said, more than 100 calls from warehouses, Amazon sites, other corporate sites, asking how they can organize their workplace. And he was in D.C. last week, and he stopped in to talk to political misfits on Radio Sputnik. And he talked about how important it is to have this captive audience rule made illegal and actually refer to the fact that the attorney for the National Labor Relations Board had just given the advice that she thinks these audience meetings should also be made illegal. I think we have a clip of him speaking. You know, those audiences where they put these workers in classrooms every 20 minutes, every single day for the last, you know, six, seven months. They're very coercive. They telling people to vote no. They're taking away their option. It's uh, suppressing their votes and spreading misinformation, spreading lies. Um, that, that doesn't help the workers that's trying to organize. Right. So as we go to broadcast, I think that the union vote in Bessemer, Alabama, is still too close to call. And so we're still waiting to see the outcome of that vote. And I know that organizers are very optimistic, but we're counting contested votes and and dealing with that election. The other labor story I want to point out is a headline that made me stop in my tracks. This is from the New York Times last week. The headline said, Help Wanted, Adjunct Professor Must Have Doctorate Salary Zero. And then the subhead is, after protests, UCLA took down a job posting that offered no pay, but it turns out colleges often expect PhDs to work for free. And so this story goes in to talk about this particular posting and the fact that we know adjunct professors, I have worked as an adjunct professor, it's one of the most exploited category of workers. You earn very little for hours of work, if you really stretch out the hours that you're working, you are basically working for less than minimum wage, especially if you have papers to grade after you're out of the classroom. And UCLA tried to put a nice face on all of this by saying that, oh, well, you know, this often happens. But with all the poor labor labor treatment, all the exploitation that I know about as an adjunct, at least we were paid something. But this idea that you're not going to be paid anything was actually new to me. So as I was going to say, UCLA tried to put a pretty face on it saying, oh, this is just common practice that, you know, you have these highly qualified people who are willing to work for free. So the union has come down hard on it. They had to take down the posting and the article goes on to say that, you know, these unpaid arrangements are perhaps the most concrete example of the unequal power in a weak labor market in which hundreds of candidates might apply for one position. Institutions are able to persuade or cajole people who have invested at least five or six years in earning a PhD to work for free, even though academics said these jobs rarely lead to a tenure track position. 
Trent McDonald, a PhD candidate in English and American literature and a union organizer at Washington University in St. Louis, is quoted in the article. He says, if your theory is that association with UCLA is itself compensation, then it makes sense. I think there is the belief that you can eat prestige, end quote. So the article goes on to say that very often adjuncts and other contingent faculty are asked to do unpaid work that is presented not as free labor, but as a way to hone their credentials, according to union activists and some instructors who have received such requests. It may be characterized as professional development or service. Professionals are sometimes willing to teach a class in their field for free so they can put the university affiliation on their business cards said Joe T. Berry, a former adjunct and historian of contingent faculty. Anyway, so that's an important article. It's an important issue for us to watch. You know, many of us are have worked in these kinds of jobs and there's been lots of efforts to unionize adjunct professors at different universities I know here in DC. And these efforts are ongoing around the country. And it's just very important as we want to advocate for the working class to realize that a lot of the working class, we all work, you know, whether you have a PhD or no, no degree, we're still part of the working class and we have to unite as a class to just end this type of exploitation. I mean, I can't tell you how I saw when I had to reread that headline. (laughs) It was just like too crazy. Yeah. I mean, I I think that, you know, as people start to read about these things and as you know we we do our job as socialists and popularize knowledge about these you know particularly shock I, I completely agree with you like particularly shocking injustices of the capitalist system i think more and more people a, a general consciousness develops in society that workers need to fight back at the point of production workers need to fight back at the workplace and so you know we've seen the unionization drives that you were talking about at amazon the unionizations taking place at, for instance, Starbucks chains all across the country, which is really spreading and becoming sort of a generalized labor upsurge of coffee shop workers across companies as well. You know, the strikes that we saw, the striketober phenomenon last year, you know, all of these things, I think, point to really a generalized heightened sense of class consciousness and willingness to engage in class struggle across the United States. Absolutely. One of the things that the article points out is that a lot of these kind of unpaid arrangements came about during the last great recession or depression after the financial collapse in 2008. So this crisis of capitalism kind of created more exploitation for this particular class of workers. And many of the people who wind up taking these jobs are people of color and women. And so People are taking these jobs with the hope that it will help them. But as the article says, these positions rarely lead to a tenure track position. You're just kind of marking yourself as cheap labor and to be exploited by these universities, many of which have huge endowments and many of which are employing presidents and boards and other senior staff at tremendous salaries. And that just adds to the outrage. I want to bring in a couple other really important stories, you know, that are quite related in my mind about exploiting workers and exploiting, you know, frequently people of color. And that really add into the overwhelming oppression that the working class faces every single day in the society. 
And that is two stories about police terror that have been going on. We've talked about both of these stories on this show already before. But in one case, y'all might remember in June 2020, during the uprising against racism, two officers from the Buffalo Police Department in New York pushed down a 75-year-old man, Martin Gugino, to the ground. He was at one of the Black Lives Matter protests. He was protesting and they shoved him on the pavement. He suffered a skull fracture when he was shoved, started bleeding after hitting his head on the concrete and was hospitalized for a month with a fractured skull and brain injury. Now, nearly two years later, the arbitrator by the name of Jeffrey Selchik just ruled on Friday that the level of force used by the two officers, Robert McCabe and Aaron Torgalski, oh, it was justified. Quote, Justified because Gugino refused to comply with orders to leave the scene, was acting erratically, and walked directly in front of McCabe, unquote. And that quotation is from the AP News article reporting on the decision. These two cops were suspended without pay and arrested at the time, but last year a grand jury declined to indict them and dropped the charges. And now both officers, they're reported to have been reinstated to duty yesterday. I just want to read briefly from the arbitrator's decision, quote, Upon review, there is no evidence to sustain any claim that respondents, police officers, had any other viable options other than to move Gugino out of the way of their forward movement. The use of force employed by respondents reflected no intent on their part to do more than to move Gugino away from them, unquote. So I just want to move that around a little bit because... If you watch this video or even just look at photos from what happened, they're on the sidewalk. They're on the sidewalk during a march. He is a 75-year-old man and very visibly an elderly person. If he went up to a police officer, like since when is going up to a police officer liable to get me shoved on the ground? I mean, I guess that actually did happen to me in, you know, in front of the White House during this, you know, this exact uprising and Pretty much same thing happened to me and my hip cartilage was torn. I'm still dealing with some of the after effects of that. But as a, if you've got a badge on your arm that says to protect and serve and you're supposed to protect and serve your community, if someone, a community member walks up to you, why are you shoving them down? Also, they were on the sidewalk. Even if they'd been in the street, it's a protest, but the sidewalk is a place for people to walk. So the fact that Gugino, a 75-year-old man, walked directly in front of a cop. And this is a line of cops. They're clearly rushing off somewhere to push back against protesters. There was a line of police. I cannot understand why one of them wouldn't just pull back and walk around Gugino and like jog a couple steps to catch up. You know, it's a sidewalk. So the grand jury declining to indict them is also extremely suspicious to me. I haven't, I don't think any of us have looked into the details of what happened there, but But then they just moved to this arbitrator and the arbitrator says, well, gosh, you know, he walked in front of a cop. So therefore, I'm almost speechless. Like, I just don't know what to say about that. If a 75 year old is, quote unquote, acting erratically, you know, maybe it's because he's upset at what's going on. Maybe it's because he's elderly and it looks like he's acting erratically, but he's just walking kind of slow. There's no reason to shove an elderly man and have him bleed out on the sidewalk. The other case that I wanted to talk about is Amir Locke. Listeners may have seen that no criminal charges will be filed in the fatal police shooting of Amir Locke. 
which was announced last Wednesday by Hennepin County Attorney Michael Freeman and Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. I just want to remind y'all, was not a suspect in the crime for which a warrant was used and was not named in the warrant document. And I'm going to play a clip, two clips actually, right in a row from Tashira Garraway speaking. Her son's father was killed by police in that same area in 2009. He was beaten to death and then thrown into a dumpster and only found once the dumpster got picked up, you know, at the garbage facility. Just a disgusting, disgusting act by the police. So this is Tashira Garraway speaking at a press conference by her organization that she founded, Families Supporting Families Against Police Violence, co-hosted by the Communities United Against Police Brutality, a longtime uh, anti-police terror organization. I'm going to start with the story of how Locke was killed, just to remind listeners. Before Amir Locke grabbed his firearm that he was licensed to carry out of his sleep, as he was antagonized with the couch being kicked, he was shot to his death without any warning. They never said, drop your weapon. They never gave any warning before they came into the home. They entered the home and then started yelling and screaming. But they were supposed to do that at the entryway before they even walked into the home. Our black men are not safe on the streets and they're not even safe at families' members' houses as they sleep. So that was Tashir Garraway, and then here she is speaking a little bit later in the press conference. The community backs us up against the wall, guys. The community is suffering beyond words. We are facing another outcry as we had when George Floyd got killed. They call it a civil unrest. We call it an outcry. Because it's the voices of the unheard. By letting these officers off that killed Amir Locke, they just told the entire community, they just told the rest of the officers that it's okay for you to walk in someone's home and and kill them in their sleep. That ain't right. That's not right. And now we know that this is going to continue because they don't have a reason to stop. So Mike Freeman and Keith Ellison's ruling today is completely wrong. You cannot tell us that you are for our people and for the community and put something out like this. These officers need to be arrested immediately. I think her words there are incredibly important, especially when she says these are the voices of the unheard. And especially when she says, you know, these these politicians are speaking up for us and saying we represent you, we care about you. And yet, you know, in the same breath, turning around and making these horrendous decisions. And an ex- a great example of that is quite literally in this statement released from the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, Michael Freeman. I'm going to read part of it because it is so disgusting. Quote, Amir Locke's life mattered. However, a little later in the in the statement, it goes on to say, however, there is insufficient admissible evidence to file criminal charges in this case. Specifically, the state would be unable to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt any of the elements of Minnesota's use of deadly force statute that authorizes the use of force by Officer Hanneman. The statement also, it essentially goes on to lobby against the existence of no-knock warrants, saying, quote, this tragedy may not have occurred absent the no-knock warrant used in this case, unquote, and acknowledging and highlighting the, quote, foreseeably violent nature, unquote, of no-knock warrants. So, 
in the same breath that they're saying, yes, Amir Locke's life mattered, they're also saying, well, but I mean, it mattered. And they call him a victim in the statement. It, it mattered. But but, you know, we we can't we can't do the, the right pull the right little legal strings to make the right little argument. We just you know, we're, we can't we can't really do that. And, you know, they, they write also about how, you know, it's not their purview to decide whether a no knock warrant should have been used. Well, <laughs> you know, it just is like, well, if it's not your purview, then whose is it? And if it's not your purview, then like, you know, isn't it relevant for you? You're like, you seem to be somebody who's involved in the criminal justice system. Like you could go out and say, maybe it's not your purview to write in the statement. Okay, well, say it out loud. Say something about it. Like just writing a Mirlock's life mattered in a statement doesn't do anything for anyone. I mean, it is clearly a reflection of the way that politics have changed and the way that the uprising has forced people to even acknowledge, yes, a Mirlock's life mattered. But they, you know, they turn about and and say, well, but we're not going to file any car- any charges here, even though you know a cop waltzed into someone's house. Again, Locke's name was not on the warrant. He was not named in the document. They waltzed into someone else's house where he was sleeping, a family member, and killed him. I mean, it's outrageous. I mean, it's so outrageous. And you can hear the anger in Tashira's voice. It's clearly this movement is alive and well and will continue fighting because we have to. Right. And I I think that so many people in that community believe that after the murder of George Floyd, there had been steps taken to get rid of laws like no-knock raids and that there was a whole package of legislation being considered to just improve the situation. But this senseless death makes it seem like nothing was done after the conviction of Derek Chauvin and that after he was convicted, it was, it was as if that monumental victory had been achieved and that they weren't moving forward with anything else. I mean, I think that People in the community have a right to ask what are their elected officials and so-called law enforcement officials doing and how have they what lessons have they learned after George Floyd's murder? Well, right. And they were doing the same thing before George Floyd's murder as after they've been doing the same thing since then. You know, it's it wasn't just Tashira there. There were family members of Dante Wright. There was a protester who had been attacked by police in the crowd who had lost an eye. I mean, there were people there who had been brutalized by police. So many family members of people who have been brutalized by police. It's not new. But, you know, for sure, the uprising brought, essentially, it told the lie that these statements say, right? It said, you know, this uprising forced some police to be actually prosecuted and actually sent to prison. That's what the uprising did. We actually saw killer cops go to prison. That tells the lie behind all these statements that say, oh, gosh, there's just not enough evidence. Oh, shoot. You know, I wish that, you know, we had this piece of evidence or that, but we just can't. I really wish a no-knock raid hadn't been used. But, you know, gee willikers, it's too bad. Like, it just tells the lie to all of that, that these are powerful district attorneys. These are powerful politicians who have all sorts of laws and tools and regulations and you know, various mechanisms in their power to bring justice for people if they chose to do so. Yeah, it's not the same case, but I just want to mention that Connecticut legislators had to pass a bill to say that police were required to notify a family of a of a person's death because two Black women were killed and their families were never notified. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, they found out through other means. And so in this whole thing about Black Lives Matter, you know, this is another case that is in the news and that we want to definitely relate to the, the the murder of Amir Locke and the fact that that they actually had to pass legislation to make the police do their jobs. Let's move on to, we've got just a couple short international stories that we really wanted to make sure we covered. Let's just do these real quick in the last few minutes. Walter, Amir Khan, the, the leader of Pakistan, is is ousted. What's going on? What are the updates? And also, you know, what does this mean? That's right. Well, the, the coalition that was supporting the government of Imran Khan collapsed. Imran Khan lost a no-confidence vote in the parliament. And now a, a new politician has taken over, Shabazz Sharif, from a, a long-standing elite political family. He is now the new prime minister. Imran Khan was really sort of an outsider to the Pakistani political scene. He was a, a sports star. He was a, a cricket star who came to power as the head of a new movement, the, the PTI, Pakistan Movement for Justice, that based its appeal primarily on an anti-corruption message and was also critical of the U.S. drone war that caused so much death and destruction in the country. Imran Khan has been in power, had been in power since 2018. It is true that the Imran Khan government made several moves that probably angered, upset the United States. Pakistan is, for instance, a, a close ally of China. Pakistan was not, the Imran Khan government was, was not interested in allowing the United States to base any sort of post-withdrawal military activities targeting Afghanistan in its territory. But the position being put out by Imran Khan and his close supporters that this was essentially a CIA-orchestrated coup, you know, I think there's reason to be skeptical about that presentation as well. But certainly this is a, a highly consequential event for Pakistani politics. This sort of tumultuous turnover in heads of state, heads of government continues. Uh, no prime minister of Pakistan has ever finished a complete term. And, and of course, the army of Pakistan and the intelligence services of Pakistan are, are very, very influential in the country's politics and, and frequently uh, directly rule the country themselves. So we'll see how long this new government, the Shavaz Sharif government, lasts. The coalition that brought him to power is quite fractious. It's composed of political forces that are really rivals with each other. But definitely very dramatic events transpiring over the last week or two inside of Pakistan. Thanks so much, Walter. Really important story. And Esther, with our last story before we go to our Liberation News Stories of the Week, just real quick. There's a little bit of new analysis out on the Iran nuclear deal and what might actually happen if the agreement is is not put back into place. Exactly. So we know that the Trump administration basically broke the agreement with Iran, which set certain conditions for the Iran to not develop a nuclear weapon. And there were certain sanctions that they would not be subjected to. And with the breakup of that deal, we know Iran has been sanctioned, its economy has been severely hurt. And there are these new negotiations under the Biden administration to perhaps put the deal back together. And I think that Maybe like a lot of people, I thought that maybe these negotiations weren't going to go anywhere. But in recent weeks, according to many analysts, progress has been made. The last straw, I guess the last point being that Iran wants the terrorist 
organization label taken away from Iran's Revolutionary Guard. And apparently there are many lawmakers on the right here in Washington complaining about that, telling Biden that the designation should not be taken away. And so if this is the one sticking point in terms of having a deal, it's very unfortunate. It's very alarming because as it turns out, it's very important. The deal is very important. I was listening to Trita Parsi in a recent interview, and he said that many people seem to believe that if there's no deal, well, things will just kind of go on as they are right now. But it's his analysis that, you know, if there's no deal, there could be heightened escalation of tensions and even attacks on Iran and tensions between Iran and the United States. The United States has already been hijacking Iranian oil tankers, stealing the oil, selling the oil, these types of acts of piracy. And we also know that Iran has a fired missile and attacked a U.S. base in Iraq. So back and forth, back and forth, the United States has said if that happens again or if the United States military is attacked, that it will be considered a declaration of war. So this is a story to watch. Maybe we were kind of taking for granted that the talks didn't mean much because the United States obviously wasn't negotiating in good faith. But it's a story to watch because a resumption of the Iran nuclear deal will have an important role just in world peace. And Walter, you are the editor of Liberation News, which you can find at liberationnews.org. As always, what are the top three stories that are on Liberation News right now that you think our listeners should look at? Well, I, I definitely want to recommend an article titled MIT Graduate Students Win Union in Landslide 2 to 1 Victory. This is a, a really impressive margin, 1,785 votes in favor of the union, 912 against. And, and as you can see from those numbers, this is a very large group of workers that have formed a union, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Graduate Students Union, which is with United Electrical Workers. This is the result of a lot, a lot, a lot of extremely hard, dedicated work by labor organizers. This is major... You know, not just for academic workers, but really for the, the whole labor movement, considering the prestige of MIT and the sheer number of workers who have organized in this case. So you can get more details about that campaign. MIT graduate students win union in landslide two to one victory. Another related story, United Campus Workers Fight for Wage Increase at University of South Carolina. We were talking earlier in the show about the, the really pitiful pay that universities offer to workers of all types. This article has some details about a struggle that's breaking out in South Carolina around that. And finally, I wanted to highlight an article titled San Diego, Just One Vote Away from No Fault Evictions Moratorium. You can find out more information about a very exciting struggle for housing justice taking place in San Diego. And as always, please check liberationnews.org every day and sign up for our updates at the top. All right. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you so much for subscribing to our Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the show, for sharing it with your friends. Uh, it means a lot to us, and it's really the only way we can keep doing this show. We will, like I said, have Brian back on tomorrow and on Wednesday night and Thursday morning. Wednesday night, of course, is our weekly video show on Breakthrough News. It premieres at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night, The Real Story. 
and then we'll have our regular Thursday audio release Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.